Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on the high country of North Carolina. So we are going to be doing a 10 episode deep dive into everything you need to know about buying a short term rental in this market. And we do have a few supplemental materials for y'all to check out over on our website. So any information that you need on pricing of short-term rental properties in this market, you can find it on our website at theshorttermshop.com. You can also find income data, thanks to our friends over at airdna.com. You can find that on our website, again, at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys are interested in buying a short-term rental property with a short-term shop agent in this market, you can email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com or you can join our Facebook group. We've created an amazing community with over 50,000 people where we talk about all short-term rental investing all day, every day. And you can join that. The name of the group is the same title as my book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. And we look forward to seeing you over there. Thanks, y'all. Hey guys, welcome back to the Short Term Show special episodes on the high country. Today, we're going to go over the contract process from start to finish. Uh, so we're going to talk about terms you need to think about when writing a contract to inspections, to financing contingencies, everything in between. And we have a really cool panel here to help walk us through that. Uh, you probably know everyone on here except our market-specific home inspector, but let's go ahead and inter introduce ourselves. Garrett, you go first. Absolutely. Yep. Happy to be back again for another episode. Uh, my name is Garrett. I am on Avery's team selling real estate as a broker in the high country, North Carolina, which is that Boone, Banner Elk, Blowing Rock, Watauga County, Ash County, Northwest corner of the state. Um, I have went to school up here, lived on, lived on and off up here for the last decade and uh, have helped a lot of people buy short-term rentals. So happy to be here. Thanks, Garrett. And Joe, I noticed that you're wearing the shirt that made your wife disallow you from being allowed to buy shirts ever again. So introduce uh, yourself and explain that. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for pointing that out. That is uh, one of my primary objectives is to uh, completely leverage out my life. And I found out that uh, if you buy horrible t-shirts, you will never be allowed to buy t-shirts ever again. And so uh, thank you for that. But I'm Joe Prilliman. I'm the uh, real estate agent for the Carolina Beach market here at the Short Term Shop. I'm a real estate investor and absolutely love the game. I'm up to 16 short-term rentals myself and excited to be here and talk about this. One of my favorite topics because I um, have gotten burned so many times for not getting inspections done. And I've learned my lesson and I get them all done now. So let's do this. Why has that happened more than one time? It's happened about 10 times. Unfortunately, I am an idiot. Um, it takes a lot for me to learn that you need to go get inspections done across the board. So uh, yes. I've learned my lesson. All on your personal deals, right? Not on client. Oh, yeah, yeah. 100% yeah. personal deals. I never, never did ever a client across the board. I'm a great agent. Oh, yeah. We forgot to one time we were buying a duplex in Chattanooga and we just forgot to get an inspection. The only reason we noticed is because the appraiser was like, hey, what about this crack in the <laughs> in the um, it wasn't the foundation. It was like a, a cement pad porch thing on the front. <laughs> and uh, Luke lost his absolute mind. And I'm like, this was your fault. So but it didn't end up being a thing. So we definitely we've done that, too, before. Don't don't fall asleep just because, guys, you've, you've bought a bunch of houses before. <laughs> and that's exactly what we did. We were like, oh, yeah, cool. On the closing. So um, on that note, we have a person here to help keep us from making those mistakes. Uh, Chris Lusk, you want to introduce yourself really quick? 
Yeah, absolutely. My name is uh, Chris Lusk. I've uh, got a company, Appalachian Inspections, um, up here in Boone, North Carolina, Western North Carolina, and actually just got licensed in Tennessee as well. So we'll be moving out that way. Um, been a home inspector up here for about seven years now. Um, it's been a ride. You see a lot of stuff. We were just talking earlier about uh, seeing a horse stall in the basement one day. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, excited to be here, excited to kind of get some more awareness out for what we do as home inspectors and kind of what to expect out of us. Thank you so, so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. That wildlife, wildlife <laughs> yeah. everywhere up in Banner Elk. That's everywhere. crazy. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you guys are going to hear about Joe's um, groundhog, his pet groundhog at one of his places in another episode. So It'll change your life. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know what a groundhog looks like. I don't know that I've ever seen well, one. Chris did the inspection, They're so I don't even ferocious Chris even beasts seen the is groundhog what they are, at that. Ferocious beast. I remember hearing about the groundhog, but I never saw it. Never oh, saw it. Maybe the groundhog is in Garrett's head. No, That's it's what in I reviews. Thought, but it's real. It's huge. <laughs> it's in oh, reviews. Man. It's online, so it's real. It's literally online now, and everything <laughs> on the internet's true. So. <laughs> All right. So first things first, I'm a buyer. We found a house that I like. I say I want to write a contract on it. What are the terms that are included in that contract? What is standard? I mean, and by standard, I mean, all things are negotiable, right? So there's no one right way to write a contract. But what is typical, I guess I should say, for the terms for buying properties in this market? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we'll try to break this down in the, in the most simple, easiest way to understand, but, uh, like it, you know, as far as what, what the similarities are, as far as this state versus other states, I don't want to be super redundant. Obviously, uh, you can pay cash for a house like you can in any state, you can finance a property like you can in any other state. So all of those things are going to be normal as far as, okay, are we going to pay, well, how are we going to finance it? Is it going to be cash? Is it going to be, you know, or finance? Um, if it's going to be finance, we're going to need proof of funds. If it's going to be cash, we need a proof of, or sorry, proof of funds for cash, pre-approval letter for finance. Um, from there, we're going to obviously think about the purchase price. Um, and then after that, there's going to be two deposits that are a little bit unique to North Carolina that we have to think about that are going to make an offer stronger uh, or weaker. One is going to be the due diligence deposit. The other is going to be the earnest money deposit. Um, now the due diligence money deposit, both of these deposits go directly to the seller. I've explained this a hundred times, so I'm going to, and every time, sometimes it's better than others. So hopefully this works. Um, the due diligence is going to go directly to the seller. The earnest money is going to sit in escrow with the title company, but North Carolina, that's an attorney. So if you hear attorneys in North Carolina, that's the same thing as the title company because we're an attorney state. So the, the easiest example is I'm going to act like I'm buying Joe's house. So I'm going to buy Joe's house and I'm going to say, all right, let's talk. He's asking 500,000 bucks. I'm going to give him full ask price for 500,000 bucks. So uh, as far as due diligence deposit, completely negotiable. There's no, there's no minimum. There's no maximum. That being said, if there is demand on the property, there are, you are going to require a due diligence deposit. Now I've seen it be around 1% of the, of the purchase price. That being said, I've also seen it be nothing, or if, if it's a house that's been you know on the market forever, or it's been 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. And so the reason that you're going to need a little bit of due diligence deposit is because we're also going to set a due diligence period. So for instance, Back to the analogy, I'm buying Joe's house, 500,000 bucks. I'm going to give him 2,500 in due diligence money, and I'm going to give him five grand in earnest money. Both of those things are going to go towards my down payment, and I'm going to set a two-week due diligence period. 
So during that two weeks due diligence period is when I'm going to do all of my due diligence or inspections, inspection period, due diligence period, the same, you know, interchangeably, we call it the due diligence period. So during that time, I can walk away for any reason. I don't need an excuse. My wife can say, Hey, I don't want to buy this house and I can wake up tomorrow and walk away. I have that right, but I'm going to lose my due diligence money. I'm going to lose my 2,500 bucks. Joe's going to keep it. I owe it to him directly after we go under contract. He's going to keep that in his bank account. He's going to say, thanks for taking off the market. I'm going to take your money, but I'm going to get my earnest money back that's sitting in escrow at the title company. So your due diligence money, the easiest way to look at it, I explained to it, it's essentially a non-refundable deposit. I haven't seen anybody get it back. Uh, there are a few scenarios when you can get it back if per se you are end up buying a house that is completely different than you know a different pictures or you got ghosted or catfish in some capacity. But the easiest way to look at it and grasp it is that you are not going to get this money back if you walk away for any reason. So the pushback there is typically, um, okay, well, why, if there's, what about repairs? What about an appraisal? What about inspections? If something needs to get done and the seller doesn't want to do anything, I just, they're they're just going to keep my money and walk away. Yes. And no. So back to this scenario, I'll get an inspection and, you know, Chris comes out and says, Hey, this is whatever, this needs to be done. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. This is you know serious. So I'm going to go to Joe's agent and say, Hey, Joe, you know, like I want, we're asking for $5,000 in repairs. And this is the inspection report. And this is why if Joe wants to sell his house and he thinks that it's reasonable and his agent's going to do that, then he's going to give him the 5,000 in repairs. The reason that he wouldn't just take the $2,500 and walk is because then the house is going to go back on the market for things that might not be a huge of an, huge of an issue. And every potential buyer, when houses go back on the market in North Carolina, it is not good for a seller. It's a lot worse than it is in some other states because people know, hey, somebody lost some due diligence money backing out. There's something, there must be something wrong with the house. So sellers are still motivated, especially with big issues to sell the property because if Joe walks, walks away in the situation and keeps my $2,500 in due diligence, he might not get anywhere near close to what I'm paying for the house from the next buyer. So his 2,500 bucks that he paid, you know, he might not get 500,000 bucks. He might get 490 for the next buyer. And so his net sum is, is lower. So there's still a lot of motivation for sellers to negotiate. I still see sellers give credits, um, but your due diligence obviously is, um, is your skin in the game. It shows how you, how much you're committed. Um, if an appraisal comes back low, it's another form of an appraisal gap. So if the appraisal comes back 50,000 under, I could go to Joe and say, Hey, can you come down? And he can say, no, I'm not doing that. And so you have to make the decision, Hey, am I going to pay the gap in the appraisal or am I going to walk away and lose my due diligence money? So with all that being said, as far as an offer, the higher the due diligence, the better the offer, the more risk for you, but the higher the offer, because you're showing the seller, Hey, I'm fully committed to buying this property. If I give Joe $20,000 in due diligence, I'm not walking away from 20 grand. I'm buying this house, regardless of what comes up on an inspection or appraisal, et cetera. Um, so those are the kind of the big two deposits and the dates, um, you know, the due diligence date you can set. I'll pass it on to Joe, but that's kind of the a long-winded answer for uh, the due diligence in earnest. Yeah, man. Let me jump in here real quick too, because it's like, the North Carolina standard contract is 16 pages long. And so what I really want to emphasize here is there's a lot of negotiating that happens between these parts that Garrett's talking about. I mean, incredible breakdown of like that initial 
fund transfer of like getting under contract. And it's just important to remember that like, this is the importance of having a great agent that understands these contracts and knows the ins and outs, because you've got little things that people can put in and finding out, Hey, is it all about price? Is it all about um, different concessions? Will this property appraise so much? And can we get additional closing costs and whatnot? And so um, great breakdown on like, here's the initial things to get under contract, but just want to really point out that like, on top of that contract, like we have additional um, like addendums that we can put in there and whatnot. And so it's all about the negotiating side to get there and stepping into that initial contract phase. It's a, uh, it's just the importance of having a great agent of understanding what that looks like. So let's talk about when earnest money is released. So in North Carolina, if you terminate under the contingency and you're all good and, and you did everything right and you met the deadlines, is the earnest money just automatically refunded or does the seller also have to sign a release? Seller has to sign a release form. Okay. So what I'm getting at here is that I want people to understand that even if you do everything right, earnest money is not automatic. If a seller doesn't want to sign a release, even if you, you know, like, okay, you, you got an inspection and there's a lot of stuff wrong with it. And so you want to terminate using the inspection and you even have all this documentation of what's wrong, even though you can terminate for basically any reason in North Carolina. If a seller wakes up and is pissed off at their boyfriend or girlfriend and they don't want to sign anything, they don't have to. And so all that really does, those contingencies is make sure that if it has to go in front of a judge, that you have the best chance possible of getting your money back. And most of the time, sellers just sign it and move on. But I want everybody to understand this because sometimes people will try and get really cute with contingencies and, and terminations that a seller is not required to sign it. The worst case scenario, it'll have to go all the way to a judge and they'll say who gets it back. Um, but the terms of the contract at the end of the day will have to be decided by a judge and not us or the title company in most cases. So I just want to make sure you guys understand that because I see investors all the time who will go offer on like five or six houses and then try to beat people up on the inspection and then only follow through with the one that gives them the best deal. And that's a really great way to lose four other sets of earnest money and possibly have four lawsuits. Now, will that ever happen? Probably not. But I just tell you guys this because I don't want you to be the first person that I hear of that it happens to. And you wouldn't be the first. Right. I've seen it happen before, but... Joe, have you had that? Is that different in North Carolina because the title companies are attorneys? I, I haven't had that happen as far as sellers not signing for earnest money because due diligence is because we have the due diligence. But does that have ever happened to you? So I've seen it threatened before. Um, and I've heard of a couple other agents that it has happened to in the past. But normally it takes is just a strongly worded letter from the attorney that, <clears throat> hey, we're going to be stepping in and we're going to be taking legal action if this doesn't get resolved. Um, that normally solves your problem there from uh, getting your earnest funds back. Um, mainly just because we're already dealing with attorneys, but um, it, it's much more common, I believe, in the title company states. But that's right. one of the benefits with attorneys. Attorneys also tend to take longer to get all of our title work done. And so there's gives and take with you know everything in real estate. Right. But um, that's normally what I do personally. I get a strongly worded letter sent out and um, we are normally resolved pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's probably less likely to happen in North Carolina because they have the non-refundable due diligence money. So the seller's getting something anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But I just say that because it can happen. And it, typically it would cost more for a seller to go all the way down the legal rabbit hole to keep it than it would for them to just 
let you have it back. But something to be aware of if you're if you're playing a little bit loosey goosey. Um, all right, what's next? So, terms of the contract typically thirty days, forty five days. What's normal in that market? Yeah, I would say as fast as a attorney can do title work and a loan can process, you know, a lender can process your loan. Typically, as Joe just talked about, attorneys taking a little bit longer than some other states to do title work. That is right now is typically kind of the last thing that we're waiting for. I had a, a client last week or last month that was able to close with their lender in two or three weeks, but the attorney couldn't do all the title work and get everything done for around a month. So I would say in my mark, at least in my area, and that could change based on other parts of North Carolina, but it's typically 30 to 45 days. I'm not sure what Joe's seeing right now down in his area. Yeah, right. About 30 days is typical. And that normally gives us enough time as well as throwing in there like our, you know, our special due diligence period of where we can back out for any reason and only lose the due diligence funds. My goal is always to squeeze our appraisal and our inspection before that time ends. So we've got a good ability to look at it and go, okay, these are only the funds we're going to lose. Our earnest money's not up for grabs. And typically we're able to get the appraisal inspection done in about, eh, it takes us about 15 days down here. But is that similar to you, Garrett? Yeah, it's getting faster. A year ago, it, up here, the appraisals were taking three weeks, maybe even four. Um, but right now, with with the demand slowing down a little bit, I've seen appraisals come back in, in in two weeks. So that leads me to another question. What is the typical term for your due diligence? So how many days is that usually so that you can try and squeeze all those things in during your due diligence period? Yeah, so if you want to squeeze everything in again it's all market specific i would say you know right now 3 weeks would be enough would be a safe enough time that being said this that's something that's a negotiation point that a seller could come back and say hey we want a 2 week due diligence period or if you want to make an offer really strong and basically say i'm waiving contingencies and you would make a zero day due diligence period essentially meaning my earnest money and all of my due diligence money is going hard effectively immediately um and so yeah it's there's not really a right or wrong. The shorter you make it, the more attractive your offer is. But uh, typically, in a traditional standpoint, if you have don't have a ton of demand, you're not trying to beat out a bunch of people, and you want to make sure you get an inspection and an appraisal done. Then, I w- in my area, it's it's between two and three weeks. Hundred percent, all over that exactly that timeline. It's all about the negotiation with what the property looks like. Are there a ton of people putting in multiple offers? Um, but trying to stay in that sweet spot or that two to three week just gives you just enough time to get everything really dialed in correctly and whatnot. So you probably don't see a lot of viewing contingencies added into contracts. So listeners who don't know what a viewing contingency is, it's making an offer, like maybe if you're out of state saying, okay, here's my offer, but it's contingent on me viewing the property in X amount of days. So since you guys are a due diligence market and not a an inspection only market, then that gives the potential buyer time to get in town and look at it and terminate on their due diligence if for some reason it's like really weird or something, right? So you probably don't see many of those. If you did that, you basically would say, I want zero due diligence. And, um, you know, so that way you could come into town, see it. And if you backed out, you wouldn't lose any money. Now, getting a seller to accept that offer might be a different story. It might be a little tricky. Uh, It's definitely, I would say it's probably not going to happen in like a multiple offer situation or something that has a lot of demand. Maybe for an older house that's been sitting on for a while that has some sort of weird quirks to it where you have a little bit of leverage, you might be able to get away and say, hey, zero due diligence. Um, Even if you have seen the property, you might be able to say zero due diligence or 500 bucks because you there's going to be some red flags that might come up that the seller knows about. Um, So it really is going to be property specific. I don't necessarily want to tell people just, hey, yeah, it's around 1% of the purchase price when in some cases... 
it's going to take a lot more in due diligence if it's a multiple offer situation. And then other situations, it might take little to no due diligence because the seller knows they have a distressed property that is, you know, doesn't have a ton of demand. So it really is all property specific. Okay. I tell, I tell my, I tell my people when they have any sort of pushback, a lot of people kind of understand it. I think it's a lot different because there are a lot of people buying in other properties, other in other states that they don't have a lot of non-refundable money on the line. Um, I, I always tell people that you know when they're like, yeah, I don't understand. I'm like, no, you understand it. You just don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, is there anything that we haven't covered about the beginning stages of a contract that we need to make sure we mention to people before we move on to inspections? I got a couple of things I'd like to highlight real quick. Um, okay. If we're buying short-term vacation rentals, a lot of times the uh, lenders do not want to see all the furnishings put on the contract. And so having an additional bill of sale that goes with it. So if you just see like the appliances on your contract, that's very normal. Washer, dryer, range, refrigerator, microwave, things like that. And the uh, lenders tend to be totally fine with that. But if you're doing any large transfer of furniture, like the entire place is coming staged, that's typically going to be on a separate bill of sale. You get that question all the time. Good point. Good point. Because a lot of stuff does come furnished. Lenders can only lend on real estate and not personal property. So it can kind of muddy the waters if the uh, furniture is on the actual contract. All right. Moving on to inspections. So Chris, thank you for patiently waiting for us to get to your segment. Uh, let's talk about... So my advice would be always get a home inspection. Uh, we, we saw people in the past two years... <laughs> joked like uh, you're always get inspections we <laughs> always get inspections people yeah so we saw people you know two years ago in 2021 and 2022 uh that everything was so crazy so many offers on every single house that a lot of times people were waiving their ins inspection and their appraisals which it got really really crazy so but in a normal market where there's not a thousand offers on everything always get an inspection. And I recommend getting an inspection and not normal market too. You can always make an offer that's as is, not necessarily waiving the contingency, which means I'm still going to get the inspection to make sure nothing too crazy is going on. But I'm telling you right now that I'm not going to ask you for anything like concessions or to fix things. But anyway, always get a home inspection is the point I'm trying to make. And uh, Chris, can you tell me in the high country, what is typically covered slash inspected during a typical home inspection? Sure. <clears throat> so in North Carolina, we have the North Carolina standards of practice. Uh, so we're, we're licensed by the state to do our inspection. And it is a, a visual, it's a, a limited visual inspection of all the accessible systems and components of the home. So that, that includes everything from, from the roof to the foundation, um, the appliances, interior spaces, electrical, plumbing, all of that stuff, as long as we can readily get to it, we're, we're going to look at it. Um, that, that does come with caveats because we can't always get to everything. If I'm looking at a house that someone's currently living in, there's a lot of stuff everywhere. There's a lot of furniture everywhere, and we have to be respectful of that current owner. So what that means for us is that we're, we're literally not going to move anything. Um, I've, I've heard horror stories of people moving stuff, trying to get to places and it going wrong very quickly. Um, an example of that for, for us is uh, we had a guy, there's a story where this guy moves 
a uh, he's trying to get to an attic access that's in a closet, like a bedroom closet. And sometimes those attic accesses are like this big, you know, they're tiny. We got to get in there and look at everything. Um, and to get to it, he had to move a box. Well, he did not know that the box, there was a, there was a fire extinguisher behind the box. Move the box, fire extinguisher fell, discharged into the HVAC system return that was running. So all of that fun stuff was flowing throughout the entire house, and that, that, was, a, that was a big mess. Um, so not only do we not move stuff <laughs> so that we can't, so that, so that we can be respectful of people's um, you know, belongings, we also don't move it for, for liability reasons. Um, but yeah, the inspection looks at literally everything that we can get to. Everything that you can see. So you're not digging into walls, you're not moving stuff. Uh, nothing like that. I think I hear a lot of people say, well, uh, they if this light switch is crooked, then, you know, what's going on inside the walls that they're not telling us? And probably nothing is the answer to that. So we're not moving anything. We're not opening any walls. Do you go in attics? I think you said that. We do. Yeah, absolutely. Attic is 100% a part of it. The, the framing, the structure, all of that fun stuff. Uh, we're going to look at all of it as long as we can get in there. Okay, awesome. So what are some common th- well let me let me back up before i ask you that so are there other things that might need to be inspected on a house in this market pretty often that are not included in a typical general home inspection yes and that is a very good question um because we cannot look at things that are below ground right i'm not going to go dig up your septic tank i'm not going to dig up your propane tank to go look at how everything is is going there um we as far as plumbing and stuff goes, we, we look at the inside of the house and how the plumbing flows, how everything operates, and then, of course, how everything is connected and installed. But the, the septic system itself is an entirely separate license from us. Um, so that that's, requires a different company unless your home inspector happens to also be a, a licensed septic inspector. Um, up here, we also have a lot of well systems. Well is another biggie because just like everything else in your house, those things have a service life. Um, ours, we have a well here at our house that went out around 12 years. We had to get our well pump replaced. And I'm not talking about just the blue pressure tank thing you see sitting by your water heater. I'm talking about the pump that's inside the ground, you know, two to 300 feet deep. Um, that thing has to get replaced as well every now and then. So you absolutely get these inspections on, on things that... Um, are typically just not covered by home inspection, which which would be things like these submerged systems um, that are not readily accessible. How about pest inspections and radon? Sure. So pest inspections, um, we do look for pest damage. And if we see pest damage, we report pest damage. We can't tell you exactly what the pest is and we can't tell you how to treat it but we can tell you that we saw it and that and based on what we saw, we can say, Hey, go ahead and get a pest inspection. Um, or you can just go ahead and, and, and you know, book one when you're, when you're booking us. Um, <laughs> uh, and then radon, we, we do cover, uh, I think most home inspectors nowadays probably cover radon testing. Uh, we will at least test it. We can't do the mitigation systems, but most home inspectors will likely be able to do the testing for you. Okay, so we've got general home inspection. If there's a well and a septic, you probably need to have those separately inspected by their respective vendors. And um, radon, you guys do do radon. Is that typical for all home inspectors in the area? 
yeah, it's very common up here in the mountains in, in North Carolina. So um, for the most part, I would say most inspectors up here would would offer at least the testing. Yeah. Okay. And then you guys do look for insect damage, but you don't treat. Right. right. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that they're, the mitigation part is a separate vendor for most things. So yep. awesome. All right. Well, so let's talk about a few things that are common to see on inspections in this market. So something that shows up really commonly, maybe it's a big deal, maybe it's not. And can you kind of separate those two? Sure. Um, I'd say the biggie is foundation cracks. A lot of people up here get really concerned about foundation, any any kind of crack in the in the concrete of their home, they're usually concerned about. And what a lot of people do not understand is that expansion or um, concrete has normal expansion contraction with the rapid rapid changing temperatures. Uh, so you're going to get some cracking. Um, usually these these vertical kind of hairline cracks are not a big deal you're going to get some stair step cracks every now and then and a lot of times those aren't even a big deal um the big cracks are the ones that are that are vertical so if, if they go or sorry horizontal so if they go horizontal and they cover the entire uh length of of, of a foundation wall and it's a below grade wall then you've probably got some some hydrostatic pressure pushing on that wall that's going to cause some fairly substantial major issues um, we typically don't make a big deal out of cracks unless they, they break the surface plane of whatever wall they're on, or if they're more than about a quarter of an inch wide, or if they, if the width varies. So if it kind of starts small, but then gets wider as it goes, as it goes up, um, that's usually whenever we start making a bigger deal out of cracks and, and typically say, we at least need to get it further evaluated by a general contractor, if not a professional engineer. Um, so the cracks are a big one. Uh, water entry is, is probably another big one. The vast majority of houses up here are built on the side of a hill or a cliff. Um, you're you're going to have a below grade wall that uh, is going to naturally take on some water. Um, and for the most part, that is normal. It is normal to see a little bit of water staining on your basement wall. It becomes a concern whenever you finish that below grade wall. And that water is coming through the wall, that moisture, and then uh, the water has no way to dry out. So then it's going to create some mold and, and these conditions that can lead to mold inside the inside the wall. Um, there's also the the you, you can have active water entry. I was at, at a friend's house the other day who had his basement flooded. And we had maybe a, a couple days of solid rain and his basement completely flooded. And it turns out it was because a gutter, a downspout, was directed straight towards his basement door, his garage door in his basement. Um, so that water control is another biggie. Um, you know, take care of those gutters. Make sure they're draining about 10 to, to 15 feet away from the house downhill so it doesn't push back into uh, your foundation. Um, of course, tree overhang is one of those that I see a whole lot, and that's probably in every single one of my reports. When you have trees that are overhanging your roof that prevents adequate dry out of, of the roof. And it's going to create moss growth and uh, sometimes even um, mold and other problems in the attic space because nothing can dry out properly. Dramatically reduces the service life of your roof and those structures. Okay, awesome. That's really, really great information. Um, so water is obviously like the worst thing for a house. <laughs> um, anything interior that you that comes up on on inspections typically that's happens all the time 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> interior, it's going to be similar moisture stains and stuff like that you're going to see in your ceilings. Uh, some of that can be from plumbing leaks and some of it can be from attic and roof leaks. Um, I see a lot of interior moisture stains around chimney, chimney penetration. So I can't, if you have a chimney, it's probably going to leak <laughs> if, it, if it hasn't already. I don't care how new your house is, how well you flash it, it's going to leak. Much like a skylight, you're going to get some water coming in. Um, so those are kind of your more prevalent, especially if you have a log cabin. A lot of log cabins in this area. Um, it, is, it is super common to see interior moisture stains on walls in log cabins, um, mostly because those cabins, those those that, that lumber, that, that timber in your in your cabin walls, that stuff expands and contracts. And as it, as it contracts, it opens up gaps and, and water can get in. Um, it's really important to, to maintain those, those logs every five to seven years is, is the rule of thumb. Every five to seven years, it needs to be sealed and evaluated by, by a log home dude that can come and take care of that stuff for you. Um, <clears throat> interior is probably usually the, the quickest part of the inspection because we're, we're going around checking walls checking on, uh, you know, light switches and receptacles. Windows are a biggie. If your windows are dated, that can lead to, lead to a lot of problems. Uh, interior doors as well. Um, I see a lot of doors that just don't latch. People kind of get weird about that sometimes, but it happens again. Expansion contraction shifts the door in the frame a little bit, and then that latch plate doesn't line up. Um, but that's not too out of the ordinary. Yeah, there's GFCIs, man. Um, constant never had one that didn't have a gfci problem yeah yeah and either they're missing or or they just stop working um and they're required you're supposed to have them in everywhere near water right so anywhere in a kitchen anywhere on the exterior of the bathrooms uh, garage spaces basement spaces anywhere that could be exposed to water you you want to have those gfci receptacles functional um, but yeah we end up having to report those a lot the other thing, the one thing I was going to say about the water stuff on the, the spots and stains on a ceiling, and, and Chris can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Chris and most home inspectors are going to be able to test that that leak, whether it's an active or an inactive leak. And so there are there are certain situations where there's a stain on the wall, but if there's not a leak, there maybe was a plumbing leak five, 10, 15 years ago that got fixed and no one actually ended up fixing the drywall. In you know, and, and that is something that can be tested during an inspection to figure out, okay, is this an active leak that I need to fix, or do I just need to fix the drywall? And that's that's a very good point. Um, and we we kind of delve into that a little bit during the inspection. So if we see a, a stain on a lower level floor, like on the ceiling in a lower level, um, and there's a bathroom directly above it, we'll go up there and run those fixtures, and and then we have a moisture meter and we test the stain to make sure that it's not that it's not an active stain. And if it's not active, it doesn't test active on the on the meter. We report as an inactive stain, and require inquire with the seller if they are aware of it and if they know anything about it. Because a lot of times, you know, sellers they if they've been in the house for forever and that stain has been there for forever, they're they're they've forgotten about it. They're not going to disclose it because they don't they completely forgot about it. Um, and I hear this a lot where, uh, people buy a house and I say, okay, ask with the seller and they say, okay, well the seller just moved, you know, moved in a year ago and it was there when they moved in. Um, so there's sometimes there's this gray area for, the, for those stains. It's just this mystery that no one knows anything about. Um, we, we find out as much as we can, but the long and the short of it is, is to at least have, have those, those damaged areas replaced or painted properly and then just keep an eye on it to make sure it doesn't turn active again. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. A lot of times something, especially in a wood house, that there was a leak, it made a stain, and there's really no way to get water stains out of like cabin wood, which is a little unfortunate. You could sand it sometimes. It's worked in one of mine, but it is what it is. Uh, So is it common for you guys to find termites in that area? So I hear that there are termites up here, but I've only ever seen one house in seven years that shows any evidence of, of very old termite damage. And that was in West Jefferson, I think. I saw, I saw a house that had obvious termite damage. Um, you see more carpenter ants, carpenter bees. Yeah, you see a lot of powder post beetles and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I really don't ever see termite stuff um, where, with what I'm doing. So, uh, no. <laughs> okay, interesting. Uh, while we're still on the interior, do you guys in that market ever mark appliances as end of useful life or roof as end of useful life? And what exactly does that mean? We have a we have an end of service life comment. Um, I don't typically do it for appliances. I, as long as the thing functions, I, I, I just make notes that, that everything's okay and it's installed properly. Um, if, if they're excessively old, now I've seen some appliances from the 60s and 70s that are still just trucking along. Honestly, those things would probably outlive all of us. But I still report like, look, this it might be prone to defect, uh, but you know, keep using it until it's until until it fails on you. If you want to, I guess most people like that charm. They they want to see these older appliances, and they're like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I want to keep it in there. Um, so I get that, but just be careful. I'm I'm more concerned about those 20 year old appliances. <clears throat> um, usually, if you're if you're buying a house and and that house was built in 2005. Just, just be ready because twenty year that twenty year mark is a typically when is when things start to to go out at least a little bit. You might have a, to start replacing parts at first, and then you then you uh, end up having to replace the entire appliance. Um, so yeah, we we will mark. Hey, this thing looks like it's beyond service life. Um, recommend evaluation for potential replacement. That kind of thing. A roof is similar. We we have we have an estimate a way to estimate the age of a roof. And if it, if it does look like it's beyond about 20 years, um, 20 to 30 years, depending on the material, we'll say, Hey, this, um, this is probably about ready. We should have it evaluated for potential replacement. So I want to highlight that there's a difference between end of useful life and failing. And depending on where we are in the market cycle, will determine whether or not sellers care or will give you any sort of a credit or even pay attention to that. So, you know, four or five years ago, you could say, oh yeah, this air conditioner's at the end of useful life. Give me 5,000 bucks. And people would. Two years ago, they're like, no man, it's working. So screw off. And then now uh, I think it probably could go either way. I think sellers are probably still in a like, no, it's working. You can, you're mind your business. Uh, But that's something to keep in mind that end of useful life doesn't mean it's broken yet. It just means it's getting close. So, or it could go for another 20 years or it could break tomorrow. Right. That's why we kind of say expected service life. So it's beyond expected service life or near the end of expected service life, but still functional uh, barring any defects and kind of the same thing for appliances. If it's functional and nothing is really wrong with it, then we don't say much about it other than, hey, this is probably up, probably beyond service life. Um, and that's a very good point because I, I kind of, I've, I've gotten harped on that before from from realtors who who I've said, hey, this is beyond service life, but functional. 
Um, and then, you know, we get clients asking for a replacement. It doesn't always work that way. Um, it, it works. It works fine. Uh, but it's, it's um, just budget for replacement is, is more or less what we're saying. Gotcha. So moving on to decks, I would imagine that most properties in this market have decks so people can enjoy the views. Is there anything specific to decks that you guys see a lot? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. Decks, um, decks are funny because it's one of those things whenever, whenever a client comes in and they're looking at this house for a short-term rental or even just for their own use, they, they come in with these, these blinders on. They, they see the vision, they see, the, they see the view, they see all of these awesome, amazing things about this house. And they're like, okay, well, we're budgeting to, to gut the bathrooms and redo all of that. And then I come in and I say, okay, hold on a minute. This deck is trash. <laughs> and you're going to probably end up having to replace it. I'm never, I never really say you have to replace a deck, but it's one of those things where I, I can see enough problems or, if, or I can see that the deck is old enough and it has old components and it's just not going to last much longer. Um, there are decks that I've seen that I can't even walk on uh, because it's just too much of a safety hazard. Um, the American Wood Council says that a deck has a service life, just like everything else, uh, 25 to 30 years. Up here, it's probably closer to the 25 mark because we have a, a lot of high winds, a lot of cold temperatures, a lot of salt. People throw salt on the on the decks to get rid of the ice, and it, and it completely erodes the, the joist hangers, and they just rust through. Um <clears throat> But yeah, a deck is one of those things I could probably go on for about an hour because they, they just, there's so much that, that can be wrong with a deck from, from original construction to, to the way it's weathering, uh, to how everything was initially installed that can all be incorrect. But on that note, there are things that we are required to report that really aren't that big of a deal. Um, so you kind of mentioned earlier, like a joist hanger, if there's not enough nails in a joist hanger, I've got to report that. Is it going to make the deck fall? Probably not. Um, but we do want to see that, that everything is buttoned up and nice and tight so that it doesn't cause a, a problem in the future. Um, and we might even make stuff like that a more of a moderate issue. Typically, whenever I, I'm looking at a deck, I, I have one comment for the entire deck because I'm just listing all the stuff that, that could be improved. Um, or, or that is wrong. Every now and then I'll have a major issue. I make it a red item in my report to say, hey, this thing is, is going to fail or it's a structural issue that, that should be corrected sooner than later. Um, but yeah, decks are, decks are a lot of fun. I'm, I'm pretty... You I'm got pretty that house in Newland. I, I, last time I saw Chris, I came to a home inspection with a client and uh, she came up and he was like in all of yeah. the deck, nerding out on how nice it was. I was like, this is a nice surprise. Yeah, mm, that's, that's that's so beautiful. rare, man. It it really is. I about cried. It was so nice. Like that deck had so much so much going for it. Everything was right, <laughs> and I loved yeah. every bit of it. So it's we cool to the, see that. We had the opposite. Whenever you did my decks, um, <laughs> we have a tree that they decided to build in the middle of our deck, and so we got the tree overhang and all the crap going in the middle of it. So opposite yeah. ends of the spectrum. A, Chris, Chris, you might be able to. Confirm or deny this. I've heard from people that before 2000, 2000 ranges when they kind of changed a lot of the building codes for inspections, where you know you can't use a four by four as a deck footing and a deck post, and so anything kind of pre two thousand is a hundred percent probably going to be there's going to be something that's wrong with it. Obviously, the age is at that point, but you're not going to see as many six by sixes, eight by eights on yeah. some of these thirty foot high decks pre two thousand. 
Right. That's that's pretty accurate. I forget exactly the year, but generally pre two thousand, they use in the nineties. You see a lot of four by fours and six by fours. Uh, before that, in the seventies and eighties, you see a lot of four by fours trying to hold up a deck. Um, but so yeah, if I see a lot of those older materials, and if it's above like four, if there's a four by four supporting a deck that's more than four feet high. Uh, then I'll say something about that. But if it, if it's, you know, a 40 foot high deck with a couple of four by fours, uh, it's, it's going to be a big deal. Um, there's probably had to be, it's probably had to be replaced. All right. Gotcha. Anything else that you see a lot that we didn't talk about that maybe I didn't bring up before we move on to a couple other things regarding inspections? Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's like a, there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there that I see, I see a ton of um, really the biggies are, are definitely the water entry and, and then uh, those those foundation cracks that usually aren't that big of a deal. If it was a big deal, it was something would have happened already. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just just dated systems. Uh, that that twenty year mark is that is that magic number when when things are going to start having to be replaced. All right. Totally going to use that tagline from now on. If something bad was going to happen, it probably would already happened already. Probably would happen already. <laughs> that. That's what a, a lot of engineers house. tell me that. <laughs> That's what I told myself whenever I was getting inspections or not getting inspections beforehand, I guess. It was a bad idea. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, all right. So last thing for you, Chris. So what are some things that you are not supposed to comment on as an inspector? So, and, and that's that's a very good question because one thing that people don't always understand about home inspectors is that we, we come from a variety of backgrounds. Um, a lot of us do not have experience in the construction industry. We are literally licensed to recognize defects in an existing structure. That's it. Um, we aren't plumbers. We, we aren't, we aren't contractors. We, we, we aren't electricians. We're just trained to recognize potential issues with those systems. Um, so there's a, there's a lot on, on each of those that we are not really allowed to say, like, I, I can't tell you, uh, whether or not I'm going to buy a house based on the inspection that I've just done. I, I can't tell you if, if it's something that I can tell you is, is something that's worth buying. Um, I, I can't tell you if, if you have to replace the water heater, all I can really say is, Hey, this thing should be further evaluated and let a plumber tell you it has to be replaced. I can't tell you how long something is going to last. So your roof might be 25 years old. I can't tell you it's going to last another 10 years. Something might happen tomorrow. You know, um, same thing with HVAC systems. If, if it's a 20 year old system, I, I can't tell you it's going to, it's going to last another 10 years. So there's, there's a lot of limitations and, and I feel like a lot of people don't, don't always understand that, that uh -huh. we are, we are more or less the, the general practitioner of a house. We, we are there to look at everything. We know a lot about all of these systems. We don't know everything about all of them. It's more of a jack of all trades situation. And, and if we see something wrong, we recommend you to a specialist. We tell you, hey, go go to the HVAC guy. He's going to take care of you. Um, that's, that's probably the closest thing I can make our job relate to is, is a general practitioner because we, we look at everything, but we don't look at one thing specifically, if that makes sense. All right, gotcha. And this one is an interesting question. So are you allowed to, if I'm buying a house and something happens and I'm like, okay, I I really don't want to buy this thing. Have you ever had people, I guess it probably doesn't happen much in North Carolina. I've kind of answered my own question because you can terminate for whatever reason. Have people ever, and are you allowed to ask you to juice the inspection to like 
make it look like there's a lot more wrong with it than there really is in order to more effectively terminate the contract? That's um, that's interesting. Uh, I people have asked me to be very specific, so I, I can and I can do that. So, like the deck comment, for example, I typically just write one comment for for a general deck issue comment. But if they're like, "Hey, be as specific as possible," I might break ten items up into ten different comments, so the report kind of looks worse than what it might be. But generally, no, I'm I'm not I'm not going to make up stuff. I'm only going to say exactly what I see in that house. I can report it a little differently um, and 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 kind of make it seem worse than it is, but it's never going to be not the truth. Uh, I'm, I'm a glorified fact finder. All I can do is tell you what I see. Uh, so generally, no. Yeah, that's, that's what I was getting at, is you can't ask your home inspector to make things up. And I've seen it happen. <laughs> um, I've had in the past where I was a listing agent and in the Smokies, and you know, it's a small town, uh, where we had some really, really tough buyers. They were some other offices, clients, and um, they were just really, really bad. And um, a few months later, after the deal was over, the I was talking to the home inspector who we used a lot too, and he said that, oh yeah, I remember them. Yeah, they asked me to, to make up a bunch of things so they could terminate the contract. Yeah, it's not necessarily for termination. It's more just to try to get concessions. Like, hey, I'm trying to get money for a deck. Can yeah, you make yeah. sure that it's not like, hey, I'm trying to back out. It's more like, Oh, yeah. That makes more sense for your market. But yeah. So, guys, you can't ask your home inspector to make things up. Moving on. So another thing that I want to highlight that I can speak from personal experience is when you're choosing a home inspector, obviously, you can ask your agent for a few recommendations. But what you don't want to do is say, oh, you know what? I don't care. You just book me whoever, whoever you like. So back when I was new, I did do that. I had a home inspector who was all like really great, easy to work with, easy to get into stuff. Everybody, all the clients seemed to love him. So, and I'd used him myself multiple times and had a client say, you know, I don't care who the home inspector is, just book who you usually use. So I did. And there was some squishy floor around one of the toilets that was missed. And then who did the blame come back on for recommending that home inspector? Me. So uh, you guys need to be, of course, ask your agent for recommendations. They should give you a few, but always call the home inspector and interview them and hire them yourselves and um, make sure that, you know, you're doing your own pushups. This is your investment and make sure that, you know, you're in, and this goes for any vendor. Uh, make sure that you call them, you like them, your communication styles match. And uh, this is somebody that you want to work with, because especially if you're going to be continuing to buy in a market, you want to be building your team of people. So um, that's all I really have to say about that, unless you guys have something to comment. Nah, I hit the nail on the head right there. Always vet your contractors. Make sure you know, like, and trust them. And uh, just make sure that they're the people that you want doing the work for you. Because, uh, I mean, that's your team. It's the most important part. It's uh, keeping the thing operating and running fantastic short-term rentals like that's that's what it's about absolutely all right moving on to the financing contingency and appraisals so what happens if you know the appraisal comes in low in north carolina lower than our contract price yeah um we touched on a little bit during that uh initial due diligence talk but uh if it comes back low i know me and joe talked about Ideally, we want to try to make that make it so that uh, we're still going to be in the due diligence period when that appraisal comes back low. Uh, if it does, then we have a couple of different options. Uh, we can come to the seller and say, will you come back down to the purchase price? 
and they can say yes or no. They have no obligation to. Um, they they can say, hey, can you meet us in the middle? You could have some sort of agreement on what the purchase price is. Um, best case scenario, they come down to the purchase price. Worst case scenario, they say, kick rocks. Nope, sorry, you're on your own. In that case, in that case, then the buyer is either obligated to pay that gap between the appraisal appraised value and the purchase price, uh, or they can walk away if we're still in that due diligence period, but they're going to lose that due diligence money. Yep. Long story short, we do not have appraisal gap addendums in this market. And that is a, not a form that the North Carolina um, people put together. And so we are a due diligence state. And again, you can walk away for any reason. That's why it's so important to make sure you are, you guys are negotiating that due diligence fee and how much it is in relation to the risk and how strong you want your offer to be. I have agents all the time that are like, hey, your buyer, are your buyers, are they willing to pay an appraisal gap? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they would be more than happy to. But at the end of the day, their due diligence period, they have, they can walk away. They, the, the seller never has the appraisal in, unless you're trying to get them to come down. So yeah. back to my initial scenario of Joe's property, if it, I agree to pay 500, if it appraised for 450, I no. can just say I'm not going to pay. I can just not pay the gap. He, the only way Joe knows that a price for 450 is if I bring, come come to him and say, "Hey, will you come down on the price?" I can walk away and lose my due diligence money. And so, at the beginning of the, the there is really the only way to guarantee that you're going to pay an appraisal gap in North Carolina is to give them a lot of due diligence money that's going to make a seller happy. If I give Joe 50 grand due diligence money, that's tell that's telling Joe, "Hey, if he's going to pay that appraisal gap, and if he doesn't, that's fine. I'll keep his 50 grand. He can walk away." Gotcha. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. And then financing contingency. So let's say we're through our due diligence. So that's out the window. It's appraised fine. But then something comes up at the end of the deal. Like I decided to finance a Lamborghini and blew my DTI. And now my loan is denied. What happens then? It's um, That's in all honesty, kind of a, a worst case scenario. I hope you got a really, really cool Lamborghini. Um, I hope it's purple. But um, anywho... In that situation, we are going to be in a spot where we have now passed our due diligence period and we are in our earnest money period. And so both of those funds are going to be up for grabs. And so if we back out of the contract, we're going to lose the earnest money and the due diligence. And then the uh, the deal is going to fall apart and nobody's going to be happy. Do you lose your earnest money if your loan's denied? Yeah, You do. Yep. In North Carolina. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, there's not a financing cont- contingency. So, you know, nope. even if like something weird kind of happens and uh, like, I don't know, maybe your employment's changed or something that's outside your control or they found something in underwriting that they hadn't found at the initial pre-approval stage, you still lose your earnest money. If you're past is the due diligence you- stage, you're losing mm-hmm. the earnest money. It is your job to figure out if you're going to be able to buy this during your due diligence period in North Carolina. Wow. I didn't know that. It is a very strange rule across the board. It is not like this everywhere else. Okay. Yeah. Cause everywhere else, if, if you get a loan denial from a lender, like you're pretty much good to go. Assuming seller signs the release. There's, of course. there's really no, there's really not too many contingencies on how you can get your earnest money back or your due diligence money back. Uh, I mean, seller performance. And I mean, if the seller can't close in any capacity or can't get, you know, a deed transferred over, or they find some sort of judgment lien or some sort of lien on the, you know, one of the things that's not disclosed that is the seller's fault and not the buyer's. There are a few exceptions, but um, there there are very few contingencies from a buyer's side that if it is the buyer's fault, you're not getting anything back. 
And this is why it's so important to really know what you're going for before you put your offer in of like, and if not like having a due diligence amount where you can back out and have a least amount of risk from that standpoint. And so it's so important to like really dig into each property you want to put an offer on. It's very much uh, uh, different than the rest of the country. You're not, you don't want to do the pray and spray model where you just send out a thousand offers and hope something pray goes and good. Spray. <laughs> <laughs> spray and pray. Spray and pray. Is that oh it? I don't know God. what it is. Uh, I had not heard that phrase before. It's a, a North Carolina thing, I guess. Um, but uh, born and raised here. But in general, uh, you don't want to just throw a ton of offers out there. You really want to be specific about what you're looking for. Know your numbers. Make sure you've got a great agent that's looking at it and knowing, hey, these are the common pitfalls. These are the things we're going to step into and have a real focused offer that you're putting in. Well, knowing that, I think that it's really important if a buyer's using a cash out refinance or a HELOC or anything like that to make sure that the lenders know that upfront and make sure I would even go as far as to say, make sure you have that closed before you start your financing process on the property. Because I've seen things happen where uh, somebody's getting a HELOC for a down payment. They didn't really let the lender know. And they didn't let them know where they were in the process with it at the very least. And three days before closing, they can't get the HELOC and now they can't get the property and it just it, it can cause a whole stink. So I would say if you're using any any other type of financing to finance your down payment, like HELOC, HELOAN, cash out refinance, make sure everybody knows everything pertinent to the deal at the time. So at the time you get under contract, uh, if you've got yeah. deals going in other markets, you still need to let the lender and probably the agents know uh, because things that you don't think could affect your current deal can. So you just want to make sure you disclose everything to the lender upfront so they have the entire picture. And also if you're doing anything like HELOC, loan, cash out refinance, make sure that's closed or damn close to it before you get the process started. Because you don't want that to jump companies up. And, yeah, 1031. Yes. That are working with title stuff and all of that good jazz can delay closing and call it delay stuff. Oh, I know thing to think really about. Good that you bring that up, 1031s actually. So when you're writing a contract in North Carolina, do you you need to disclose, hey, this is a 1031, right? Yes, you are supposed to disclose if it's a 1031. Um I don't necessarily know if you have to disclose that before you put the offer in. I just think it has to be disclosed to the attorney, but I need to double check and make sure. There's yeah. a box on the there's a box on the contract that says the purchase is is uh the buyer needs to sell another property to purchase this home. So typically that's more of like hey, if you're a primary resident, you have to sell your house to to buy the other property. Um but if a, if a buyer is still financially able to buy the property without the 1031 funds, you could argue that that box does not need to be checked. So exactly. if, if I, if I, if I'm using 1031 money, that doesn't necessarily need to be disclosed. But if I'm relying on that 1031 money from the sale to buy the property and I can't buy it any other way, then yes, the purchase is then reliant on the sale of another property. And I would actually take that a step further uh, that you want to say, put something in there that allows you to get out of the contract if something happens with the 1031 if you don't plan to buy it anyway you might be wanting to use 1031 funds and you plan to buy it whether or not you're buying it with a 1031 but an example of when i've seen this happen is i've seen people try to 1031 exchange into properties that are 
partially built like new construction or pre-construction because you have 45 days to identify the property, but you have six months to actually close. And what I've seen is, okay, we're identifying this new construction. It's supposed to be done in six months. No problem. Well, as we all know, new construction never finishes on time. And I've seen it get right down to the wire of that closing deadline for the 1031. Then the seller does something wacky. Maybe it's not their fault. You know, something gets extended or whatever. And then that puts the buyer past their six month date and they don't want to buy the property anymore. So I would even argue to put something in there that says, if we can't close by the six month date, then, you know, earnest money is refunded. That is a really, really specific case. And I don't foresee that happening in a market like this. But a couple of years ago when everything was really, really crazy, I saw it happen actually more than once. So just something to be cognizant of if you're making offers. I would recommend just not never 1031 into pre-construction is my advice. Right. But oh, there and you're can still going to lose your due diligence money. So in North Carolina, yeah. no matter what, there's not going to you're not going to find anybody that's going to accept your offer on with no due diligence contingent on a 1031. So you're still going to lose here. You might get some, but you might get your earnest yeah. money back. If unless it's after the due diligence period, then yeah, you're not getting anything back. Mm -hmm. Yep, the due diligence period trumps your additional provisions. Wow. Yeah, you could you could you could write in a you can you can make your due diligence period. At, so like I had a I have a new construction or it's ha it's a new construction that's half built that they're finishing up a basement or whatever. We made the due diligence period ten days after the completion of the basement. So there's not an actual date. It's just whenever the basement is then completed with pictures, whatever, then the due diligence period starts. So you can make, you can make it a floating date. I confirmed that with my attorney, but the due diligence, whatever it says on the due diligence period or date trumps all any sort of additional provisions. It can get sticky. Yeah. Okay. So adding in additional provisions would, would that keep you from being like forced to close on it? Or it's just like, don't bother, just never 1031 into new construction and you're not going to run into this issue. <laughs> I would just say, yeah, be prepared, at least in North Carolina, be prepared either that, to buy the property or lose whatever your deposits are going to be if you can't mm -hmm. go through in the 1031. So 100%. either, yeah, I, I would say worst case scenario, if the 1031 fails, how much money am I going to lose? And is that worth the risk that I'm taking? Also, just lay if you have a special situation, lay all this out to us in the beginning because how we negotiate that and how we write these contracts is very specific really to your individual situation. And so, right. um, 100%. If you got a weird situation, break it all out for us and we're we're on your team. We got gotcha. you. I've had scenarios. That's a great point because I've had scenarios where deals have fallen through because at last minute, I learned things that the lender maybe told me or whatever that I had no idea that. And the seller at that point is too late to be like, they're pissed off or whatever reason. And I'm like, if I would have known that, we could have structured this whole thing differently to begin with. But there's there's times when, yeah, it, agent, mm -hmm. client transparency can be can be good. I think a lot of people don't understand that your buyer's agent is on your team. So you can be 100% honest with us about what your situation is. You don't have to treat us like we're the listing agent representing the seller. So if there's something you don't want the seller to know, you can tell us. We're not allowed to tell the listing agent. That would be a violation of a bunch of different regulations. And we don't want to lose our license for the sake of telling someone your business. We are here to work for you. We're here to make things work for you as a buyer, as a buyer's agent. So just keep that in mind too. Um, all right, moving on. So last part of the contract that I think a lot of people get stuck on is, do you guys have a final walkthrough slash final inspection? Sometimes they're called different things. It's not an actual home inspection, but just like a final walkthrough of the property. We do. Yes. 100%. All right. 
Cool. So, and it's, it is used really just to make sure that the property is the same as it was when it went under contract slash got inspected, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. The furnishings are still there that you right. negotiate in a bill of sale. Yeah. Whole okay. nine yards. So I would say that there are two people who should be doing that. One of two people or a combination of both. One, the buyer themselves coming into town and looking to make sure, or two, them hiring the home inspector who they use to inspect the property to go back out and walk through. So let me explain a few things about, here's why you would hire the home inspector. Uh, if, If they inspected it originally, there's a few things that the seller agreed to repair. They're coming back out to make sure that those things were repaired. Um, and it should be you if you're just, if maybe if you didn't ask for repairs, you got some concessions, great. It should be you, the buyer, to come back through and make sure everything looks the same as it's supposed to. It should not be your agent for a number of reasons that I have seen firsthand with my own inexperience when I was newer and younger and just things I've seen over the course of time. So um, even if you're that that same guy who I hired the home inspector for him, uh, I did the final walkthrough for him. I just walked through, took some videos, and I did not walk over to the toilet and sit on it, which is the only way I would have noticed that there was squishy floor there. And he tried to come after me and say, well, I did the final inspection, so I'm liable for this floor. Your your agent is not a home inspector. They're not a contractor. There's a lot of different things that we don't know how to do. I'm, I mean, I don't know. If the is this floor kind of just like this? Is this weird tile? Is it did the home inspector not call this out? Is it you know, there's a lot of things. I don't know. I'm not a home inspector. I am but a lowly real estate agent. Um, and then there's been times where I've seen people do final walkthrough videos or FaceTimes for their client, and then the client comes comes to town after closing and they're like, Hey, there's these three or four pieces of art that they took and they swapped out this bed for that bed. And I didn't notice it until now. And then again, the the liability falls on the agent. In a lot of states, the agents are actually not allowed to do final walkthroughs. So keep that in mind. I don't know if that's the case in North Carolina, but you should personally be doing your final walkthrough. Of course, your agent can FaceTime you and all that uh, too, but it, it can't quote, count as the final walkthrough, um, just because of all those things that I just mentioned. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I only do it with the buyer. I think the the most important thing there to get upstream of that is to make sure your buyer knows that before closing, because I have a lot of buyers that will come, you know, they're coming in from out of town and they might not be there before closing or the day of, and they're pushing it close to be like, Hey, if you're going to be in town, it might be beneficial to get here the night early. So we can do a walk through the day before or the morning of, um, because, you know, just to give them, you know, like, Hey, I can't do this by my, you know, if you want to find a walk through, you got to be here for it or you got to hire somebody. Um, so that's something to think about. hundred percent. And this is one of the largest financial decisions you were making. Like take the time to go out there and physically walk this property then to make sure everything's dialed in correctly. Like we love doing that with everyone who's running through us. Like we absolutely love walking a property with you towards the end of the whole deal. If you completely can't make it and we have to do some type of video and whatnot, just understand that that's not a final walkthrough. Like we're, we're here to show you to make sure that some of these things are still present, but um, I would definitely not count that as a final walkthrough. If you do end up doing a reinspection at this point, um, a reinspection for us, typically we like to see there's a, there's an official repair request form that 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 can go out there, 
And if we can see the items on that repair request form from the initial inspection, then we can go back and check on just those items. Um, and that typically doesn't take very long. And so, which is an excellent time to, to come back with the home inspector and kind of review some things and have some conversations there. So that's an, an excellent opportunity to, to just get better eyes on all of that stuff. Okay. So we kind of talked about final walkthrough. Um, last thing that I really want to talk about is coming to stay in coming to sign closing docs and then go stay in your cabin the day of closing. I don't recommend doing that. I personally recommend closing remotely and then coming in later uh, when you know you're going to have access to the property because all kinds of things can happen with trying to come into town and go straight to the property after closing. There can be delays in recording or there can be delays in lending that cause you to have to push back. I've just seen it too many times where a client will fly from across the country or come into town with a truck full of furniture and then not be able to stay in their property. Maybe it's closing on a Friday and they're stuck for the weekend with their truck and everything. So what are your guys' advices, <laughs> each of your advice on that? And how long does it like, can you, is possession taken immediately in North Carolina or after recording or after funding? When does that happen? Yeah, uh, I've learned this the hard way. Um, we are a, we're either a wet state or a dry state, which I just learned what that was. And it's not referring to alcohol, um, basically meaning whenever this contract is signed in some other states like Colorado, I heard, you know, you have possession immediately and it can record weeks later. Um, it is not official until it records at the courthouse up here, at least. Um, sometimes that's old school. They got to walk over. There's not electric, electronic filing and someone's got to walk from the attorney's office down to the courthouse. Um, so typically if the, you know, a closing is in the morning, call it nine to 11 AM, that recording is going to happen at the courthouse sometime between one and three o'clock in the afternoon. And that's when things are going to be official. So um, if you're doing a mail away, which happens a lot in uh, with out of town clients, I'm dealing with one this week. What's going to happen is the attorney is going to send you a package over, overnight. You're going to sign it with a notary uh, and then um, overnight it back to the attorney for the attorney to then uh, do everything, settle everything, balance everything, and then take it over to the courthouse and record. So um, that's kind of how the process can go. It can be a little bit tricky for some people. Um, but if yes, if you're closing in person, uh, I would say up here, typically it's going to be a couple, two to three hours. If it's in the morning, two to three hours after closing is when things are going to officially record. To the T. And in my opinion, um, being homeless for three or four days can be exciting and a joy. <laughs> and so... If, if you really want to make sure that's the case, um, yeah, just send it, just load everything up in the truck and drive out here and just be ready for it. And, uh, yeah, it, it's a fun time. Don't let it scare you. Another, yeah. another thing to note up in North Carolina is that the contract, the, the closing date is contractually flexible. So you have seven days to close from the actual date on the contract. So unlike some other States, if the closing date is March 15th, Wednesday, and you end up closing on Friday, you don't need permission from the seller. You can close up to seven days after the, mm -hmm. the closing date. And a lot of times because of the, uh, be, uh, the attorney, the, uh, being an attorney state and attorneys doing title work, a lot of times the attorneys might not have the right schedule and they might have to push closing back a day or two. So I've also learned the hard way. I tell, I advise a lot of my clients to try to line up and make closing on like a Wednesday. So if it is, on, you know, instead of being on say a Friday, because on a Friday, if things do get delayed and they're coming into town, then it might not record till Monday and then they're homeless for the weekend or they have to do some sort of, you know, they don't want to stay at the house and sure all those things. So I have learned the hard way, at least in North Carolina, that um, making a closing early in the week or Tuesday, Wednesday 
can be uh, easy for everybody. Yeah. So I would say, you know, come in town, do your own final walkthrough the day of closing, day before closing, and just know that there is a chance you might not be able to get into your cabin immediately. So if you go in with the right expectations, then you're probably fine. Also keep in mind, we haven't mentioned this, that uh, in North Carolina, you're required to stay with the uh, management company for 180 days in most cases. So you may not be able to access it immediately because of that. But that's something that you would know, you know, well before at, at the beginning of the contract when those those days are. So just keep that in mind. Can I clarify that too, Avery? It's um, yeah, yeah. you're required for 180 days to maintain the reservations. You are not necessarily required to maintain Ooh, the property manager. The management gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. If okay. you want, you can take over all of those individual ones and the management company is supposed to give those over to you. And so that can oh, also so get they a little can sticky. Give those to you and you don't have to pay them the split? No, Technically, yeah. that's going to depend on their contract with the previous seller. So a lot of property management companies have it written in that when they make the reservation, they have done their service and are due their fee. And so in that situation, it breaks down specifically to their contract that they have. Okay, that's interesting. So you don't have to leave it with some rando property management company. You can just maintain the listings, have your own people clean and do all that and not, and just they get their split and that's it. That is true, but they also do not have to give you the contact information for the guests until two weeks after closing. Hmm. Technically. It gets weird and sticky. It needs to be reformed in some capacity. But if a property manager is getting basically pissed off, it's because they feel like they're owed money. And a lot of times they don't realize that it's the seller that owes them money because they have the bookings already made and the seller doesn't know that. And the seller's like, I'm not paying the management fee. And so the management company's like, well, I got to get paid from somebody. These are my bookings. Um, I have found, at least up here, if it's the self-manager to self-manager, super easy transition because they're not getting a management fee. They don't want to deal with the guests. It's a lot easier to transfer over. It's typically some of the more old school property management companies that have a lot of bookings um, and are relying on those bookings or the fees from those bookings that can you know, create a fuss. Mm-hmm. And so all boils back to let us know what your plan is in the beginning. And it's way easier for us to make this way easier for everybody. And right. it's just harder to unwind stuff. If you let us know, I, hey, I'm, this is your plan, we can figure it out and we'll make it easy. But if this gets sprung on us two days before closing, it uh, it can be a problem. Right. And there's not a right or wrong way. I mean, I have some clients that like, I'm not going to be there for closing and it's already an active turnkey rental. I'm going to do some work, but not for another three months. I want to take all the, to tell them to get all the bookings and I'm just going to change the, you know, I'm just going to swap the keys and I'm going to set everybody up. I'm even going to use the previous cleaner. I'm not even going to make a new listing until, you know, two or three months. And so there's, there's definitely a variety of different ways to do it. And other people are like, Hey, I'm coming the day of closing, set everything up, do everything the more conventional way. Um, and, and it is all kind of going to be property specific. All right. That makes a lot of sense. So before we go, is there anything related to... Joe, why are you constantly smirking and or cracking up off mic? <laughs> I love it. It's so good. What is? <laughs> I just love being on podcasts and okay. I just love listening to people talk and okay. it just makes well, me laugh. All right. That's why um, I turn my mic off so I don't laugh. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I didn't I'll know if you were you smirking because of your property management situation in Banner Elk or if this uh, person who bought, you bought your house from. That's really it. I'm running through all these situations <laughs> in my head of just all the times I've messed it up personally. And so that's why I'm always laughing off mic because I'm just like, oh, I remember when I did that. And 
I remember when I didn't get an inspection and had to replace an entire uh, master floor beam for the entire house. And uh, oh yeah, I've, I've made all the mistakes, people. Sometimes it's better to learn what not to do than learn what to do. <laughs> I've got you if you want to know what not to do anytime. Just call me up. <laughs> all right. Well, if we don't have anything else that, that we want to add, no. We're good. Yeah, I'm happy camper. No. I feel like I've uh, distracted you guys enough with my offset laughing. All right, cool. Well, uh, if you guys want to buy a house in the high country with Garrett, email agents at the shorttermshop.com and we'll get you hooked up. Or if you have just general questions that you want answers to, you can join us every Thursday for a live Q&A session. We call it our office hours at strquestions.com. Thanks, guys.